0: And then he's uh, he's in prison, and you're not messing with it right now, right? No. Okay, good, so just making sure. And he says that whether I am in chains, verse 7, or uh, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So he started off in chapter 1, verse 1, showing that he's writing to the people of Philippi, the overseers and deacons. He says that he is in prison here in verse 7, and that his um, prayer for them is that they will grow in depth of insight. And then he wants them to know that what he's going through in verse 12 has been for the advancement of the gospel. And now the whole palace guard and everyone else, uh, excuse me, he is preaching the gospel to the whole palace guard and to everyone else while he is in chains. And he says here in verse 14, because of my chains, that he believes that people are getting confidence now to preach the gospel. And so then he continues on to say that some, verse 17, are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition, and that is uh, stirring up a little bit of trouble for him while he says he's in chains. But he says, does that matter? And he says, not really, as long as the gospel is preached, whether from true motives or false motives. Then he continues on, and he says that he's thankful for their prayers, and he believes that it will work out for his deliverance. He says, in God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is verse 19. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And so, eventually, he does get released, but then he gets arrested again. And then he he says to them that he is convinced that I'm um, convinced of this. Verse uh, 25. I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So he knows it's not his time yet to go. Because he's torn between wanting to die and be with them, and he says, "But I know I'm going to remain, and that it's for your progress and joy in the faith, so that my being with you again, your boasting, in, so that my being with you again, your boasting in Christ uh, Jesus will abound on account of me." Then he basically ends the chapter, chapter one, by saying, "Whatever then happens to me, in other words, whether he lives or dies, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel." stand firm in one spirit, striving together as for one as one for the faith of the gospel. So he's, preach, uh, he's praying for their unity, and he says that if they continue to do that, this will be a sign to those who are oppressing them and um, uh, persecuting them, that they will be destroyed because he then says it's not only been granted to you On behalf of Christ to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. So, just in summary, Philippians is written to the elders and deacons of Philippi, a Roman city. Paul is in jail, and he says while he's in jail, he's preaching the gospel. He also believes that this is being used to encourage others, that they can have boldness. And then he begins to teach them that they need to be in one heart and one mind, that they need to be uh, living a life worthy of the gospel. And that they are not to be discouraged by the persecution they're facing, but knowing that they're not only supposed to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for Jesus. Everybody got it? All right. Can I get an amen? amen? Okay. So you guys will help me go through this now. Now, that's chapter 1. So by God's grace, we're going to finish the whole book of Philippians today. We're going to go through chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Philippians chapter, four, uh, chapter 2 begins... Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And so, Jorge, have you got it all set up? Are you able to join us now? Yeah, come on and join us. Thank you. Has he said that we should be of one spirit before? Has he told us that in this letter? You guys don't remember? I just highlighted it. Just, I just highlighted it. You guys were paying attention, right? Okay, so has he told us that before, to be of one spirit? Yes, he has. Now, he is telling us here to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above ourselves now what example before I go to verse 5 is he going to give us of humility what example is he going to give us Josh Christ on the cross but be a little bit more specific before Christ goes to the cross what was humble about Christ close you said he gave himself to humanity that's kind of stretching the cross what were you going to say So, how Jesus was born. What do we call the birth of Jesus? The Navidity? I mean, no, no, the, navi- no, now I'm trying to mispronounce it. Uh, nav- man, that's so funny that Nativity. There we go. Nativity. No, that's not what we're talking about. So those of you who have been with me through this series, you don't know the next verse that comes after this in the example because I've used it before to point to Jesus' divinity. You guys don't remember? It's about the nature of Christ, and it had to do with his birth. Remember? How he lowered himself as a servant, but be a little bit more specific. He took on human flesh, and that term is called the incarnation. The incarnation. See, this is what I fear for you guys in Bible college is that oftentimes you're taking on so many subjects that you're not able to comprehend all that you're learning. It's a little bit overwhelming for you that I've gone through this book with you multiple times and that when I come back just after a short time, you're forgetting these things. So let this be a remembrance to you that you need to remain humble while you're learning and continue to go back over the things that you're studying, especially in chapels where you're beginning to learn books of the Bible, like with me, okay? So this shows you that you need to really grow in your memory and your ability to with, with, um, retain and withhold information. So he says to them in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. Now what example is he going to give? He's going to give the example of Christ. Verse 5: In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. What was the, the mindset of Christ Jesus? who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness. So is he in his nature equal with God? Yes, according to this, he is equal in his nature God. Being in very nature what? God, everybody speak up nice and loud and clear for me, okay? Be loud and clear for me today. Who being in very nature, what? Thank you. He's in very nature God, but he did not consider it something to be used to his own advantage. Or as another translation says, something that he had to grasp and hold on to. His equality with God gave him privileges, okay? His equality with God gave him opportunities to do things as God. Now, he's going to take on the nature of a servant. So how is that going to be used to help us have humility in relationships? Someone give me an example of how that's going to be used. Yep. There we go. Great example. So... Matter of fact, I'm going to take back the great example. It's not a good example, and I'll tell you why in just a minute. But somebody come up with another example, and I'll tell you why that wasn't a good example. Because the Christ, I'll just, me, me fix your issue there, and then I'll go to a better example. And you need to know this, guys. Wives submitting unto their husbands as Christ, um, as, um, as, wives submitting unto their husbands. Let me make sure I have the right terminology because I want to, I, I, I said you were good at first, but I want to make sure because I could be wrong here. Let me just go to the passage. Uh, for as the husband, as the wife, is the head of the church, his body. Now as the church, yes, okay. The reason why that is wrong is because the example of wives submitting to their husbands is as the church submits to Christ, not as the son submits to the father. So you mix two examples. Do you understand? It's an example of humility, but it's not the example that I'm looking for. So I'm going to give you guys another opportunity, and if you want to try again, you can. What is an example that we can now get from Christ's humility being equal in nature to God and then taking on flesh in our relationships because that's how we're supposed to take it in your relationships one another you're supposed to look to Jesus as an example yes yep so close you said that we're supposed to be humble that's good but I'm asking you to give me an example of the humility give me an example. Because some of you, I think, are missing that he's in very nature equal to God, but now he's going to live in nature as a man. Think about that and give me an example in relationships, why that would be Paul's example. Paul is going to use the incarnation, the two natures of Christ, for the whole purpose of teaching them in relationships to submit one to another. So explain that. Why would that be a good example? Give me an example in a relationship where Jesus having two natures is a good example. Why bring up the two natures of Jesus? Why not just say, as our sister said, well, he submitted to the Father, so you submit to the Father. Why does he bring up the two natures? And he says, in your relationships, do that. Do what Jesus did. Did you have one according to that parameter? Okay. The father was the son was equal to the father. Son took on flesh, helping for those who can't hear you. Okay. Yes, very close. But I'll give you give you yeah, very close. But I'll give you the way that I think would clarify it, and this is what I was looking for in that relationship with another brother that you're trusting to lead you, he has a different authority as Jesus took on a different nature. So Jesus taking on flesh now doesn't have the privilege that he had as God because it says he's not going to use it to his own advantage. Do you notice that? He's not going to use the quality of God that you cannot kill God to his own advantage while he's as a a man. So as a man, you can kill the flesh of Jesus, but you can't kill God. Do you understand that? So he's not going to use that ability he has in his God nature to his own advantage. So what would it be like? I'm a police officer. I have authority. Use that example. In my relationship with you, a citizen, I am not to use that authority uh, as a police officer to my own advantage, not abusing my authority. Ooh, there you go. That's a good way to understand it. That will help you in the problems of justice, won't it? We teach the police officer to treat others not to his own advantage, out of his own anger, out of his own situation. How, How about another example, parents with children? Parents, don't use your authority to your own advantage. Everybody, be humble like Jesus, who was equal to the Father as God, but when he was a man like us, he did not use his equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Does everybody get that? That's the whole entire point. Is that everybody, no matter what position they have, how about this, you're a millionaire. Do not use your million-dollar status as owning your own business, having your own company. Do not use that to your own advantage to lord it over others. That's the point that Paul is making. Now, in that point, he makes another point, which is the incarnation. And the doctrine of it, and it goes deep. So let's go further. Who being in very, let's go to verse five. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, or the attitude, as another translation says. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a serpent, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So that's where you were coming from and saying, well, yes, he humbled himself. That's that's part of the incarnation. Yes, but why is that humbling? Because he had to his own advantage, he never had to die. That's why the example you were saying, which well, is simply submitting to the Father, doesn't really mean what we need this to mean, because the Son can, can submit to the Father in eternity past and never have come to the earth. We believe within the Trinity, there's an economic relationship where the Father is over the Son and the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Son submit to the Father, and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. But we don't believe they're different in nature. And so that didn't have to do with Christ and the church and those things. That wasn't the point here. Now, in our marriage relationships, that would be a good example to say that the husband does not use his authority over his wife to his own advantage. And that's a good word to husbands, is it not? Amen. There's a good word for that. So look at how many things you can learn about relationships through the incarnation. And he goes so far as to become obedient to death on the cross. Now watch what he receives from this. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what was the name that God gave to Moses, and he said, this is the name I want you to know me by. What was that name? I am, am. that's right. And now how do we best pronounce that name? It means, his name means I am that I am. So you're... Right in that way, but how do we pronounce it? Starts with the Y, ends with an H. Yahweh. That's our best understanding of how to pronounce it, right? But now the name of Jesus is above every name. So you're not even saved by simply saying, Yahweh saves me. How are you now saved? By Jesus' name. And in the Hebrew, that is Yeshua or Joshua. But you just can't say Joshua. You have to mean Joshua or Yeshua, the Mashiach, the Christ. Can't just say Jesus. You can't just say Jesus is Lord in the sense of Jesus down the road. Jesus, it's Jesus the Christ. Because aren't there many people named Jesus? Aren't there many people named Joshua? Right. But it's the specific one, Jesus the Messiah. He is Lord. Now, does it mean there, when we confess that Jesus is Lord, that He's just like a landlord, that He's the Lord of the manor, as some cults like Jehovah Witnesses teach? No, because go to Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23, says, "But myself, excuse me, by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoke, revoked. Before me, every knee will bow." By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me in the name of Yahweh or in the Lord alone, our deliverance and strength. Wow. So you mean we're now doing unto Jesus everything that Yahweh said he swore would be done to him? Well, then who must be the person That speaks as Yahweh to Isaiah. Who must be that person? It must be Jesus. Now, do we just make that up out of thin air? No, we go to Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. I saw his glory, right? That's what Isaiah says. Now, who do we believe Isaiah saw? Jesus, now how can we show that? Where does that say that in the Bible? Does anybody know? I always forget the exact reference, but do you guys know the gospel? Which gospel is it? Which gospel is it? Were you saying yes to something else? You know know the gospel, yes. I'm asking you, do you know which gospel it is? I long for the day to be your guys' professor again. Oftentimes I wonder how much you guys are retaining from what you're getting. And some of these things are the most important things. Do you understand? And I've taught you guys this. Have you been here when I've taught the book of Philippians? Yes. I've taught you this. Isaiah said this. John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw whose glory? Jesus is glory and spoke about him. So according to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 41, the Lord, the Yahweh, the person of Yahweh, we should say, that Isaiah sees is Jesus. So is it strange for us to hear Paul say that the name of Jesus is exalted now to save souls and that before Jesus every knee will bow and they will confess him as Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. Is that strange? No, that's the same preaching of the Old Testament, that before Yahweh they would be confessing him as Lord. But what person would they be doing that for? According to Isaiah, that says they will come before him. Isaiah 45 says, they will come before the Lord. He says, you will swear unto me. Every knee will bow before me. You will confess, I am your deliverer. And who did Isaiah see? As the Lord, Jesus. Now, does that mean Jesus is the Father? No. We can find times where the Father speaks in the Old Testament. We can find times where the Son speaks. And we can find times where the Holy Spirit speaks. These three all share the one name of Yahweh. And here we see at the incarnation, the Son, the eternal Word, now in flesh, the God-man, not man becoming God, not God stopping to be God to become man, but God taking on humanity while retaining his full divinity, but not using the divine nature to his own advantage. He is put to death physically, though in his God nature, always alive, just like in your spiritual nature, you're always alive. And at the resurrection, he's given now the privilege to have everyone bow before him and confess his God-man name, the name of the Son in the flesh. What's that name? Jesus is Yahweh, to the glory of the Father, who is also God. Remember, we just learned in a prior verse here that Jesus is in the nature of God, just like the Father is in the nature of God. And just like the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. But are there three Yahwehs? Are there three Yahwehs, yes or no? No, there's only one Yahweh. Are there three gods? There's only one God. Now, the person of the Father is one. The person of the Son is two. The person of the Holy Spirit is three. Now, are those three persons one person? There are three persons. But are those three persons equally one God? Yes, not 33%, 33%, not parts, equally God. So we are not saying that three gods equal one God, and we're not saying that three persons equal one person. We are saying that there are three persons that equal one divine nature or rather share one divine nature or that on their own equally partake of the divine nature. Just as the Father has divinity in himself, the Son has divinity in himself and the Holy Spirit. So that was what we were supposed to learn about relationships from the incarnation. Moving on now, chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now notice here, it says continue to work out your salvation. But in chapter 1, verse 6, it says that God is going to work out our salvation to completion. Is that a contradiction? Chapter 1, verse 6. It says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, the he there being the Father, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion unto the day of Christ. But hold on. It says here, For you to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, who's working? The Father through Jesus Christ or you? What's the answer? Someone said the Father. Someone said Jesus, which is not in the subject matter right now. What is the answer? Who is working? The Father or you? In 1.6, it says that the Father is working in you unto the day of Christ Jesus. And here it says, for you... Chapter 2, verse 12, to continue to work out your salvation. So, who's doing the work of your salvation in this sense, the Father or you? The Father. Then, what do you do with continue to work out your salvation? He's not speaking to the Father, speaking to them. So, who's working, the Father or you? You. What do you do then with what he says, the Father? Who began a good work in you will continue on to completion. The Father's not working in you. You're only working in you. He's working with us. So what's the answer? Who is working, the Father or you? Both. Critical thinking. See? Should have said it. Wrong answers are better than no answers, but not all wrong answers are going to be treated alike. So be ready. But wrong answers are better than no answers when you're learning. It's both. Now, what work is the Father doing in us? The Father is doing the work of making sure that the work we're doing is brought to completion. So, He's like the Father helping us walk. But do we have to move our legs? Yeah. Do, do we have to learn how to eat, you know, spiritual food? Yes. He's not going to open your mouth, you know. But it does say, in one sense, He'll nurse us but he wants to move us on to meet. This is what we call synergism. It's one of the reasons why we disagree with Calvinism because Calvinism is monergism. Only God is working. Synergism is more than one working. You've probably heard that before. Synergy. If you haven't, you can look it up. Monergy is one work, one person working. Synergy, multiple. Who are the persons working here? The Father... The Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, so we can attribute all that God will do just putting it as God's work, but we know we can show the Father's work in that verse we were just at. I can show you the Son's work in us, obviously, I can show you the Holy Spirit. So we'll we'll say that's all God's work, but is there a work for us to do? Yes, there is a work for us It says it right there. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then now look, verse 13 gave you the answer. If you had listened, it was already there. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So it's ultimately God giving you the will and the actions, but you have to be participating. I also put in there Ephesians 2.8 because the work we do in cooperation with the Lord, can that ever be attributed to us as gaining or earning or working for our salvation? No. Me learning Scripture and working out my salvation can never give me the right to say I've earned my salvation. Oh, I've learned Scripture. I've earned my salvation now. No, learning Scripture is allowing the work of God to give me works to do. But it's still my choice because I could step away from the work of God and not allow it to complete in me. Because who will God's work always complete in? Those who remain. So this is not a blanket promise to whoever believed in Christ will always now believe in Christ. and you know, No, the, the promise of the work coming to completion is to those who remain with Christ. In other words, the plane, as an example, will complete its journey. If it was a perfect plane, and you know perfect planes will complete their flight, a perfect plane will go from New York to London. It will complete its journey. What must you do if you want to be a part of that journey from New York to London? You must remain on that plane. The plane perfectly will go. But once you get on the plane, does that mean you're always going to be on the plane? No, because you can jump out the plane, can't you? Let's say a perfect plane allowed you to get off at any time. Do we find examples in the Scripture where people start with Christ and then they don't finish with Christ? Absolutely. We could go through those at any other time. Paul mentions them in different letters, and he says they've ship- shipwrecked their faith. He talks about them being cut off. He talks about, uh, or rather Jesus talks, the Scriptures talk about them being cut off. Paul warns about apostasy and people turning their back on Christ. And so we know it can be done. So does that mean God is not a perfect Savior? Because somebody might say, well, isn't God a perfect Savior? And he promises to complete it. How can you mess it up if he's a perfect Savior? Use the plane example with him. Isn't the plane perfect in this example? It's going to go from New York to London. It's perfect. But it's our choice to remain on the plane. Now, if we remain on the plane, do we ever take credit for it? No, because it was Christ, or in this example, it was the person giving us the invitation. It was the person who built the plane. It was all of that. We won't say on the plane, I deserve some credit because I stayed on the plane. You deciding to stay on the plane never made it fly one inch. Do you understand? You deciding to live for Jesus never contributed one drop in the bucket to your salvation, one iota. It never made any difference to whether or not Christ could save you or would save you. But did, did, did Jesus say that's what he asked of us? The works of God is to believe. That is what we do. The work of God that he's required of us is to believe. And then from our belief, the good actions follow. The faith without works is dead, the Bible says. But as we believe, good works follow. We are God's workmanship made to do good works in cooperation with the Lord. If he wanted robots, if he wanted creatures without free will, there would be no hell, but there would also be no understanding of love and choice and all of those things. And so God in his sovereignty made a choice to give us a choice. And that choice does not stop after we receive salvation. And some people say, well, it will even be uh, theoretically possible in heaven to walk away. Well, we know it was for, for the devil. Will it be for us after salvation? I think maybe the possibility could be there, like in theory, but we would never take it. Just like you could eat poop anytime you want, in theory, but unless you're insane, you never will. And so in heaven, we would never be insane, and we would always understand what that would look like to walk away from this. Whereas Satan was deceived, as others were deceived. And so after the age where you could be deceived, and now you have a perfect mind, I don't think you would ever go back to to deception. So that's how I would say we would still retain a will in heaven to grow and to know, and yet we would still remain there, uncorrupted, holy. Just something to think about. Now, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Can I hear an amen for that? In your schoolwork, at the church, in your families, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become... "'Blameless and pure, children of God without fault "'in a warped and crooked generation.'" That's a quote from Deuteronomy 32.5. God rebuked them, and out of anger, the Bible says, he would not allow that generation to enter into the promised land. His wrath came upon them. He judged them with finality, because he was merciful to their children so they could come, but he said to them, "'You guys have gone too far. "'You're not going in. "'You will now die in the wilderness.'" And the Bible uses, it as, uses that as an example and says, don't be like them. Because remember, they kept grumbling against God. They kept arguing with their leadership, Moses. And they were warped in their thinking and crooked in their way of living. And the Bible says, don't be like that. Be blameless in the decisions you're making. Be pure. And now look at the next thing he says. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky, Shine among who? The warped and crooked generation. Because Israel serves as an example of all unbelief, disbelief, rebellion. It's not like they're worse than the rest of the world. They're the best example of the world, in other words. And God uses them to show us what not to be like. So all humanity has been like Israel, rebellious towards God, and if not worse. But it says, when you do the right thing, then you will shine among them, among a warped and crooked generation. You will shine among them like stars in the sky. Isn't that beautiful? As you hold firmly to the word of life. That's a promise from Daniel twelve three, that you'll shine like stars and the righteous will be bright like the sun. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. He says, then when I'm there, and your life is being judged by the Lord, he says, I will know that I didn't run or labor in vain because I will see you now being rewarded for your life of not grumbling, not arguing, and that you were shining like a star in the midst of a warped and crooked generation, like Jesus said, lights and darkness. But then he even goes on in verse 17, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, In other words, even if you don't make that right decision, I still am going to be blessed because I can get poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, from whoever does it, and I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. So whoever decides to follow this, he'll be like poured out over their life as a drink offering. And the Bible talks about them taking the wine and the strong drink and pouring it out. You ever seen it at a graveside, pouring it out? I wonder if that tradition, pour one out, comes from the drink offering. Because they would pour out their alcohol, not just to marinate it so it tastes better, but they would pour it out as a symbol of offering the liquids to the Lord. And he said, you may or may not do this, but for those who do, I will be poured out then like the drink offering over your sacrifice. So here's the lamb being sacrificed for that person. Let's say you wanted to bring your lamb, you know, for Passover, whatever, it's being sacrificed. And now the drink offering, let's say it's being poured over it. Paul says, I'll be that drink offering to anyone here who wants their faith to be counted as, you know, they want to keep the faith. They want to be good for the Lord. And even if no one does it, he still would be a drink offering upon the sacrifice being made that Christ made. He would be being poured out over Christ in that sense. That's another way to look at it. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. So at this point, Paul's in prison, and it seems like he's been left. He's been abandoned by his other Spiritual sons and daughters, those who's mentored in the Lord. Verse 21, he says, For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Isn't that amazing? That he makes a general statement and says, you know, everyone just looks out for their own self. Without the mindset of Christ, everybody just does what they want. They don't think about Jesus But you know, Timothy has proved himself because as a son with a father, and that's where we get the idea of spiritual sons and daughters. It says, because like a son is with the father, he served me in the work of the gospel. Did he serve me in getting my laundry, you know, just coming over and just doing me favors? No, in the work of the gospel. And so that's why we as leaders, if we have that role in your life, and I don't assume to have that role in everybody's life. I know that I'm a good leader unto you as a senior leader, uh, elder of this church, but there may be people closer to you in your 101 time than when you got raised up or youth, you know, youth leader or just other people in your life. And you have to look back on those relationships, and I may be that way for some as well, but those relationships you have to continue to honor. Don't just set those to the side. Well, I'm not in the 101 anymore. I don't need to honor that person. Some of you might say, "Well, my 101 leader is not, not honoring the Lord or, or the church I go to. Well, then they have lost their place of honor, right? Find someone else to look up to and to follow, so that that tradition continues to be passed on, disciples making disciples. Verse 23 of chapter two. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. So I want to send Timothy to you. Timothy is going to eventually become the pastor or senior elder over Ephesus, the Ephesian church. I want to send him to you as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come. We're not sure if he ever did come uh, back to the Philippine area, the Philippi area. Here's a little bit of the timeline of Paul. If you look at Galatians being the first letter and some of his travels here, if you go here to Philippians, he's writing it from a Roman jail cell. Eventually, he'll get out for a little bit of time, and maybe we could say he does go there. We don't know. We can assume that he did go some places, but we're not for sure. Uh, eventually, he'll write the rest of these books, but then get rearrested and go to Rome and be beheaded. Let's keep going. Verse 25. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphrodus, my brother, co-worker, fellow soldier, who was also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. So here is a brother, a person that was sent from the church of Philippi to come to Rome, to help Paul out so he wouldn't feel alone. So even though he had Timothy and he spoke so well of him, he wasn't all alone. It wasn't Timothy only that loved him. It was also these other churches and people that were sending. So when he makes that sentence, no one looks out for their, uh, everyone looks out for their own interests. No one looks out for Christ. He's not saying that for everybody. He's just saying in that situation, there are certain people who have left him And in the flesh. We don't think about Christ, you know, as an as a overarching thing. But this brother was with him. Now, notice all the titles he says about this brother. May this be said about us. My brother, sister, family member, close, close in relationship. What's the next thing he says? My coworker, someone that works alongside of him. Fellow soldier. Come on, Josh. Fellow soldier. Remember that day we were fellow soldiers? I mean, we've all been fellow soldiers in one one way. But remember when you came to church, when it was a scary day to be at church for some, you know? Fellow soldier. Who is also a messenger? bringing back and forth the message from the apostle to the church. May we all be considered the family of God. Who's my mother, brother, sister, those who do the will of God. May we all be in those relationships. May we all be workers with the Lord and with his people, co-laborers with God and his people. May we all be fellow soldiers, not buckling to cowardice and fear. May we all stand strong, amen, and every one of you is a fellow soldier, and all be messengers, willing to study and to learn these scriptures and then to bring it to others. That's why I'm really concerned about how you guys understand things in Bible college. Some of these things that you guys are learning will not be as important as other things. When I'm teaching you the Holy Scriptures, going verse by verse, you have to remember these things. I know, I know you're busy. I know there's a lot of things are going on, but do not let these things pass by without you remembering. Don't let this happen in vain, okay? Amen? Come on, say amen. Amen. Thank you. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill, so he must have gotten sick. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So even Paul dealt with anxiety, anxious thoughts. He had to renew his mind just like us. Verse 29, so then welcome him in the Lord with great joy. Honor people like him because he almost died for the work of the gospel or the work of Christ. He has risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. So maybe a lot of the other Philippian people couldn't do it, but they sent this brother to make up for it. And he says, you got to honor him, rejoice with him. And I think about the people we know who have laid down their lives for the gospel like the Riascos and others and times that we've been threatened here in the church. We rejoice with those people. We honor those people. And in this situation, the brother got sick. Maybe it was because uh, he was arrested and beaten. And one of those other times Paul talks about, because he said he was beaten three times, you know, and he was uh, left for dead and all these other, I mean, we know the time he was left for dead, he was stoned, but we know there was other times that he was forsaken and went hungry, he said. He was naked. It was just maybe one of those times that Luke didn't record. And so he might have gotten infection from his beatings and almost died, but the Lord restored him. And now, he wants to send him back as that messenger. Let's go on now to chapter three. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So don't just rejoice in Him, just rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. Notice Paul calling names. Watch out for those dogs. Uh, don't want to use the language here, but would it be similar to what sometimes people say is a female dog? to a Jew to be called a dog would that be the same thing as the b word we don't know exactly we know that the bible forget, forbids profane speech but there is speech that could be considered profane that's in the bible so what's the difference it must be the context you go to israel call somebody a bee and they don't know our american culture that they don't even know what a bee is you call them a dog in their culture that could be worse well, a bee is a female dog, but you get my point. I love to point at this out because so often we have sensitive ears and sensitive minds in Christianity. We think it's nicianity. He's calling them dogs. And I don't know if there is another word on top of that in their culture that could have been harsher, but I know for a Jew that is as harsh as the Scriptures get. No Jew would ever want to be called a dog that would never be a good name to call them. That would be like the equivalent of somebody calling a black person an N, Calling a, or calling a Hispanic person by the S S P I C, you know, whatever, you know. That would be the height, from Scripture's standpoint, of what you can call them. And he says, watch out for those dogs. Those evildoers. Those mutilators of the flesh. Now some of you may want permission to cuss, but if you do, you better be ready to explain why you did it, <laughs> okay? Because if you're just doing it because you hit your thumb on the, you know, with a hammer or you're in traffic, that's not biblical. Um, that's not biblical. That's just being profane and unwholesome speech. But when you call somebody a dog or a snake... Or you say that they are a donkey in heat looking for another donkey with the biggest genitalia so they can have the most emission come from that genitalia, as the prophet said? You better be speaking on behalf of the Lord because that's the language of the Bible as well. And sometimes it makes us squirm because that's uncomfortable for us, and it wouldn't be pg But it's the language of the Scripture, and we have to not be afraid of it because some Muslim will be quick to point it out to you and then use your nicianity to have you now put down Christianity. And I will not have some cult leader or some other religion have me be embarrassed of Israel being called a donkey in heat looking for a big genitalia to have big emission that will not embarrass me. Because that is the way they were in the spiritual as being spiritual prostitutes and whores. And I'll show that to you because I don't want you to think I'm making it up. God help us to understand the scriptures. Amen? I don't want to be ashamed of the, the language the Bible used. I'm so tired of nicianity coming to us as Christians trying to get us to deny christianity. I don't serve nicianity. I serve christianity. Amen? And who gave the word of the Lord? When the Bible says in the prophets, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord. Who is the word of the Lord? You missed your moment to preach, preacher. Who is the word of the Lord? Nobody knows who the word of the Lord is? Jesus. When it says the word of the Lord came to them, who came to them? Jesus. Jesus is the same. So when they say, well, Jesus didn't talk like that. Yes, he did. He talked like that in the Old Testament. He talked like that in the New Testament. And he talked like that as the second coming. This is Jesus' words for Ezekiel. Jesus is speaking. Who is the word of the Lord, folks? Who is it? Who is the word of the Lord? Look at Ezekiel. Chapter 23, the word of the Lord came to me. Who came to him? Jesus Jesus came to him. John 1:1. in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. There has been no other word sent from the Father except Jesus. The word of the Lord came to me, came to Ezekiel. Chapter 23, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. Who is speaking here? Who is speaking here? You guys are missing your chance to preach. What's wrong with you? Are you confused? Ezekiel said, the word of the Lord came to me. Who came to Ezekiel? Who is speaking to Ezekiel? Who is speaking when I read verse 20? Who is speaking? Jesus! guys missed every opportunity I gave you to shout the name of Jesus in this chapel can we repent for that I've told you about three times uh, live feed please pray with us to repent that the word of the Lord being Jesus became confusing Father forgive us forgive us on a day like today when in chapel Lord It is explained to the students over and over again, the word of the Lord is Jesus. They don't know who is speaking. Lord, I would never trick them and switch subjects or who is the speaker. God, may they repent today. They have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand. May they learn your scriptures and be broken for you. So that may they may know and love you. Someone get me some water, please. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for these students. In a warped and crooked generation, (coughs) may they know and love you. Not fear man, but only fear you, O God that they can serve you all the days of their life. In Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. I'm going to give you another chance. The name is Jesus. It will not change. It will not. I'm not here to trick you. It will not change, the answer I'm looking for. And I want you to shout his name because you love him this morning. Amen? When Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 23, the word of the Lord came to me, who is the word of the Lord? When Ezekiel starts prophesying in verse 20, who is speaking? Thank you. There she lusted after her lovers, whose genitals were like those of donkeys and whose admission was like that of horses. So you, who is speaking? Jesus, so you longed for the lewdness of your youth. When in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breasts were fondled. Jesus is speaking. Through language that offends Oprah. Are you offended by Jesus? Speaking about the genitals and the admission of donkeys and the breasts being fondled because they were perverse and disgusting in their behavior and that he used the most graphic language to show what this looks like to be spiritually raped and fondled by the devil. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not ashamed of it at all. That's why when my apostle, he's my apostle, I'm not ashamed of the apostle Paul, when he says in chapter 3, verse 2, watch out for those dogs. There was no other language more offensive to them from the scriptures to be called than a dog. And he says, watch out for them. Once again, does that give you permission to go talking about breasts and genitalia and missions in some gross, defiled, uh, will-feral kind of way? No. Does it give you permission to strike your hammer, uh, strike your uh, when you strike your uh, hand with a hammer, to now cuss? No, because that is foul. That is unclean. It should not come out of your mouth. Does it give you permission to be... Uh, foul in road rage. No, but if you are led by the Spirit, are you able to use that language of the prophets? Absolutely. Are you able to call someone a dog? Absolutely. Are you able to call them swine, serpent, vipers, the language of Scripture? Is anyone here ashamed of Jesus? Jesus called them snakes. Jesus called them vipers. Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. If you took the insults of Jesus and listed them all out, it was no different to them than being called the worst possible things. Because in their, in their culture was the worst thing to be called all of that. Why would he do it? Just to offend them? To be filthy? To be an Andrew Dice Clay? No, because our God uses the language of, of offense to open up their hearts to humble them. You're a dog. He called the woman from Sarah Phoenicia a dog by an inference. Why should I take what is for the children and give it to their dogs? And why was he saying that? Because those dogs, that, those people had afflicted and persecuted the Jews and had treated them unfairly during the Assyrian captivity and during their times of affliction. And he was saying, you come from a filthy nation. Why should I stop ministering to them and now help you as a filthy dog? Mine are sheep. But what did it do? Did it remain only as an offense to her? No, it cut right to her heart, and she said, even the dogs can get crumbs, even filthy dogs in that culture, because they weren't really their pets. Any filthy dog can come around every now and then to the barbecue, a squirrel, whatever else you can think of at that time as they lived pretty much indoor-outdoor living, you know, could come and nibble on that thing. You want to see the dogs of their culture, go to India. You'll see the dogs begging, you know, for scraps, living on the streets. She said, even the dogs get the crumbs, and that's where the revelation now comes. He didn't just come for his people who themselves had become wicked, prostituting themselves. He also came for the other nations because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Watch out for those dogs. Who is he talking to? The mutilators of the flesh. What does that remind you of? Mutilators of the flesh? Galatians. What does he say to them? You want to be what? Circumcised, go all the way and just cut, off, cut it off, emasculate yourself. Do you remember that? Nobody who's read the book of Galatians to memory or has it ability to recall it from memory to what I'm referring to? Here in the book of Galatians, he starts rebuking them. You foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. How did you receive the Spirit? By the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Are you so dumb? Are you so stupid? After beginning by the means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? What is he talking about? Keep going. Understand this, that those who have faith are the children of Abraham, if you try to live by the law, you have to keep all the law. Keep following his point. He then talks about the covenants. Follow it through. Where does the rebuke go? It goes all the way into chapter chapter 4, verse 8. Or excuse me, let's go to chapter 5. Let's just skip ahead. But notice this: this the argument. He says it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Mark my words, chapter 5, verse 2. I tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value for you. So he's saying, are you so dumb? You're so foolish that you came as pagans into this thing? I didn't say you had to be circumcised. I didn't have to snip the foreskin of your male genitalia for you to be right. Now you're hearing from other supposed Christians that are saying you have to be circumcised to be a good Christian. Why are you letting them deceive you? Continue on. He then speaks to them. He says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way. And emasculate themselves, cut it off. It's not Nicianity, friends, it's Christianity. I'm surprised you don't remember this. That's quite a thing to read in the scriptures. Maybe because you didn't know what the word emasculate meant, you kept reading past it. I assume you've read the book of Galatians. Some of you are leaders in our church, and it's required you read the whole Bible. So he says to them. You are being bewitched, like as if a spell was cast on you to think having your skin snipped off of your genitalia is going to make you more of a Christian. You became a Christ follower because of Christ and the cross and the faith you had in him like the, like the Abraham faith. But for those who are messing with you, those who keep coming after you, tell them Paul said this. If that's how they think they can be righteous, by cutting flesh, well then cut off all your flesh then in that area emasculate yourselves. That's the Apostle Paul. That, as what we just learned, comes from Galatians, the first epistle. So they must have already have known that kind of talk from Paul. So something must be going on in the church again in this area, Philippi, where those same people are now messing with them And he has to say, watch out for those dogs. They're not really Jews. They pretend to be. They might have a lineage that goes back to Abraham. But like how Jesus said, they're really like their father, the devil. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh. And all the non-circumcised people said amen. They might like it like that. For it is we who are the circumcision, who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the real circumcision, though I myself have many reasons for such confidence. And so go back to understand that it's the circumcision of the flesh, uh, excuse me, of the heart that saves, not of the the flesh. If I said that wrong, forgive me. Paul is reiterating what he's taught in other places. That the circumcision done in the flesh was an example of what would be done in the heart. That the circumcision would come to the heart. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him you also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised, By Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and which now you've been raised with him through faith. That is the working of God who has raised him from the dead. Amen? Now look, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. He's going to talk about his life as a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, my Yeshua, uh, My uh, Yahweh, rather, Yeshua is my Yahweh. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them all garbage. And you know what this is? In the Greek language, I consider it all what comes out from a person when they go number two. That's the language he used right there. I consider it all that. But not to offend the S-U-M chapel, and because I don't prefer to use the, the language that starts with an S and ends with a T, I'll just say poopy. That's the word in Greek. That's what it means. I consider it all poop. The stuff that comes out of the butt. That's what I consider it all Refuse and garbage, filthy rags. And Isaiah is the rag of a woman's menstrual cloth. That's what your good works are compared to uh, Christ's righteousness—dirty and filthy. And the Bible says that if you try to work your way to salvation, it looks like a menstrual cloth. He is now saying that everything I did in Judaism is like what I look at in the outhouse after I go to the bathroom. The language here is not my point. It's the point of the language. Do you get what I'm trying to say? I'm not trying to be graphic for graphic's sake. I'm using the language, which is graphic, to make the point. The point is you are supposed to be disgusted by this. You are supposed to look at you trying to work yourself to heaven as a minstrel rag or as what comes out into the outhouse when you go number two. That's what you're supposed to see. The dogs, the evildoers are offering you. You don't fall for it. You don't get bewitched. You don't take on their foolish stupidity. You stay free in Christ. Because Paul said, I had more poop to boast about than all of them. But it's still poop at the end of the day. It's all garbage that I may may gain Christ and be found in Him. He spends an entire book, the book of Ephesians, on the in-him revelation which is what that book that I wrote by God's grace in him is about. He says that I may be in him. If you could understand what that means, to be partakers of the divine nature, as Peter talked about, the theosis, the divine intermingling with the human, humanity and divinity intermingling. Isn't that glorious? That Christ is not just, you know, sprinkling us with a little bit of his blessings like sometimes you hear about the Muslims talk about Allah. Allah will give you a little blessings, but He's so far, He can never come to you or be with you because you're so unholy. No, the Bible says we come into Christ. We come into Him. We come into His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit in which He sent. We come into Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, in Christ. We spiritually are born again by Him and into Him, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and what the participation of His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. He wasn't afraid of death. He knew that if His Savior had suffered and rose again, that He Himself would rise again after his sufferings. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He didn't know how, but he knew it was somehow. He would attain to the resurrection of the dead. And for him, it was being beheaded. And now he's waiting. He's waiting, crying out. His place uh, is under the throne as a martyr or one of the 24 elders. We don't know if martyrs who are one of the elders don't have to be under the throne. We don't know. But wherever he is seated or at around the throne of God today, he is waiting eagerly for the resurrection. And today, we have to be like Paul and say, I'm not afraid to suffer. Because in one moment, my, my persecutor, my tormentor may have authority over me. He may be able to dismember me, behead me, put hot coals on my tongue, cut out my tongue, gouge out my body parts as they've done in other places and different times. But he will only have authority for so long. Within an instant, you and I and all those who have suffered that way or do suffer that way will go from being on that dirty floor in some nation being persecuted to the streets of gold, and to the presence of God. Paul said, I count everything that I've been through in my past as dung, dung, as one translation says, garbage, that I may know Christ to be in him and to experience the power of his resurrection as well as his suffering. Not that I've already attained all of this, Some were teaching that the resurrection had already happened. That's another discussion to that heresy. But he's telling them, the resurrection hasn't happened. I'm not in my glorified body yet or already arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So as Christ is reaching out to me, doing his work by the Father and the Spirit in my life, as that is happening, I'm doing my work to reach out to God. I'm calling after God. I'm knocking at heaven's door for more. I'm seeking. I'm asking. I'm not satisfied with where I'm at. Father, send me more knowledge of Jesus. Draw me closer to his side. Holy Spirit, give me more power. I want to take hold of Christ more. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Somebody say one thing. The one thing I do, I forget what is behind, and I strain towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I am straining towards that prize to finish the race. He then makes it applicable to everyone. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. So those of us who are mature should all look at our lives without Christ as dung. And any gospel, no matter how pious it may sound, oh, we fast during Ramadan, oh, we do circumcision, we do all of these religious acts, no matter how pious a religion is that is without Christ and the gospel, we should look at it as dung. And anything we do without Christ and the gospel as done. Doesn't the Bible say that even Christians will have some of their works burned up on the day of judgment? If our brother here, as he's painting, doing maintenance work, does it with grumbling and complaining, he'll see on the day of judgment all of these works that he did painting, caring for the church. But if any of it was done and grumbling and complaining, he'll be burned away. But even if he does the most minuscule task where no one says thank you, we always like to say thank you. And thank you, my brother, again, for all you do and all that every one of you do. But even if you do something that never gets told a thank you, no one ever sees or notices it. The Bible says on that day when it's tested by fire, it will be the reward that you will have for eternity. And that reward in your crown is what you will lay at the feet of Jesus, saying, Jesus, you were worth paying attention in chapel. (laughs) You were worth getting good grades in SUM. You were worth serving and being with the youth who sometimes don't listen or appreciate me. You were worth cleaning and serving in the church. You were worth all that I went through in life, Jesus. The sufferings that I went through, Jesus, were worth it. For you are worth it. He says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. So he's patient with them. How many are glad that we're patient with you as leaders? Amen. How many are glad that I'm helping clear up some things for you today? Only let us live up to what we've already attained. And that's what I expect from you in this church as well, like Paul did. That you will live up to what you've been given. Don't waste what God has given you. Live up to it join together and following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live like we do. Don't give up. Keep living like how you see the Christians living. Okay, someone else falls away. Someone doesn't do it right. You keep living for Jesus Christ. You finish your race. One of the first pastors that I followed and admired cheated on his wife with the secretary. The other one that I admired left his wife in an unbiblical divorce and suffered for depression for years. Imagine that. I'm coming out of depression. I'm coming out of drugs. And I'm looking to a pastor for help. And he's basically at the verge of divorce, eventually has it, and then goes into deep depression for years. I was working with some other Christians We were doing renovations, and one brother came and he said, I was just like you. I went to Rob Parsley's Bible College. I was pastoring, and now I realize it's all a bunch of junk, and I'm back into the world. Imagine meeting that guy in your first month of salvation. You just went to my hero's college. You've just been a pastor, and now you're smoking in front of me. You're cussing and going out with the girls. I just got saved. I believe this is real. And you're trying to warn me that I'm wasting my life and my time. Pastors in depression, yeah. adulterous affairs. But I knew Jesus. I met Jesus that day, November 5th, 1995, at my mother's kitchen table. And I found examples while others were leaving. And I thank God for those who have finished their race. But I've made a determination. I'm not coming out of this this is the faith that has changed my life. This is the, the relationship with God That is so real. It's it's more real than the air that I breathe. And in my deepest, darkest moments, I know God is more real than I'm real. Sometimes I even, you know, go to those deep thoughts as I question you guys on how do you know you exist? How do you know reality is real? Have you ever been down those, you know, existential dilemmas? And then I say at the end of the day, I may not even be real. I may just be a computer program, but I know there had to be a God who made it, and he must love me. He must be taking care of my little bits, my little computer bits he's been so kind to me. He's been so generous. I said to my children, I said, if daddy ever dies, you guys can cry. I understand you'll miss me. I said, but you better rejoice at some point that your daddy got to live long enough to know Jesus, to see my sins forgiven, to get married to the most beautiful woman that I've ever met, to be able to see children be born and to see you guys know and love Jesus and to pastor a church that loves the Lord. I said, yes, you can cry that you'll miss me, never see me again, but you better rejoice. You better sing the most happiest songs you know. You better tell the whole world, here was someone who walked with God and counted it all but joy. Are you listening to me? He said, join together and following my example. Don't run from it. Don't run from the persecution of your apostle and your leaders. Don't miss out on church now because they were too extreme. (laughs) Come on, you know what I'm preaching about now. Join with them. I thank God that when we were going through that season of BLM, people said, I want to stand next to you. I want to be where you're at. Others then saw the documentary and said, man, if I would have known that was going on, I would have been right there next to you, brothers. Join together follow my example Suffer for Christ. You're going to be raised with them. Come on, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their belly or their stomach, and they glory in their shame. Be careful if you look this up, but it's out there. A woman pastor, now stripper. It came on my news feed because it's such a big deal for the common, uh, you know, for the world, the common man to look at this. It was like on NBC or something. I just couldn't believe it. And yes, she is a stripper. She used to be a pastor. She's now a bisexual stripper. And she's one of the most famous strippers now in that scene. Pastors have become homosexuals. Pastors have become strippers. We know that from the man side of things. But here you would think of a delicate woman. You know, she used to be pure and holy. Now you get to pay a certain fee to watch her strip. And everybody wants to see the pastor strip. It would be like Nancy backsliding, turning to a stripper. God forbid, their glory is in their shame. I'm free now. I'm happier than I've ever been as a pastor. You are full of the devil. And the devil has given you his temporary pleasures to deceive you. You are no different than the mouse eating the strychnine, thinking you are just getting a free meal. But you are soon about ready to feel the poison, and it will kill you and destroy you. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, whatever feels right. That's what I do. Notice it hasn't changed since then. And they glory in their shame. Their glory is their shame. They're not ashamed of shame. They glory in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. That's why it's good, even though sometimes I get caught up and confused a little bit by revelation, but it's good to remind folks, you're not going to be in charge of this place for long. You're not going to be a stripper for long. The internet's not going to be used for defilement for long. Are you guys listening? They only have their minds set on earthly things, but listen to me. Our citizenship is in heaven, as we eagerly wait a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, the three great names that also serve as titles. Yahweh, Yeshua, Yahweh, the I am that I am, Yeshua. The Savior, Christ, Mashiach, the anointed one. The I am that I am who saves and anoints. We are waiting for our Savior from there. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. He's going to control everything at one point, isn't he? He will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. The incarnation doesn't stop at salvation. He resurrects with a body. Doesn't he say that? Touch me, I'm not just a ghost, Thomas. I'm not just a ghost. He had flesh and bone, but not flesh and blood, because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But the heavenly body will be of flesh, just like how angels can come in flesh, and it will have bone. I don't know if angels have bone, but I know they can lift and do different things. Jesus had flesh and bone, he could eat, but he could also walk through walls, and he could ascend to heaven, and our body will be like his body. How many are glad he raised with a real body? How many believe that he still has that body? How many believe we're going to get a body just like his? And that's why we believe that it's important to know that he didn't just rise as a spirit. Of course, he has a spirit, and it's always been a spirit, but he also rose as a body, Philippians chapter 4. What time does your next class start? 1.15. Let's end it here. I think, we can, I, think I can complete four. Because I want to have a parting message for you guys at the end of the year. By God's grace, we can complete this. Chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in his way. Dear friends. You could preach a whole message on that. His brothers and sisters, he loves them. They are his joy, his crown. He wants them to stand firm in the Lord. Because remember, it's our choice to allow the Lord to continue to do that work. He then says, I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind. Maybe they were the ones that were not being humbled before. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. So whoever's in charge, the senior leader of this church, he's now talking to them, though he wasn't mentioned. He says, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement, one of the only church fathers mentioned that has a book outside of the Bible. You can read Clement's writings. Along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life, help these women get along. Who knows the fights that they were having or what was going on, but Paul mentions them by name. I'm glad that he did, but it might be a little bit embarrassing to be known from eternity that you were the ones fighting in Paul's church. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say it again, rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be evident to all. So even though we're rebuking, we're using the language of the prophet, we're doing it from a place of gentleness, meaning we don't want to crush them. We don't want to break them. Jesus with the Seraphim woman did not want her to perish, but he had to offend her mind with those words for she to see who she really was so she could see her need for God. So let our gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. By the way, I've memorized this whole passage, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, all the way down to verse 9. It is a great passage to memorize. I was thinking about trying to show off and do it today, but I would have to practice it a little bit more. Most of it I still have in memory. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Never forget, in your times of prayer, add thanksgiving to it. And the peace of God, when you do that, when you live a life of rejoicing and praying with thanksgiving, the peace of God will transcend your understanding, and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So whatever time you find in your life that you're stressed out, Go back to rejoicing, go back to praying with thanksgiving, and watch what comes out of that. So in other words, rejoicing plus prayer and thanksgiving equals a miracle of peace that transcends your minds. Do you get that? Oh, I want the peace that transcends my mind because I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. I need a peace that says I don't have to have you figure it out. I'm just going to give you peace in the situation. You don't have to know how it's all going to work out. I'm going to give you peace. How do you get that? By rejoicing in the Lord and praying with thanksgiving. And then how do you guard your peace? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And you guys have seen the chart that I've made, right? The upside-down pyramid where you filter your thoughts. Have you guys seen that chart of filter your thoughts? If you haven't, uh, message me, and I'll give it to you. It's in a previous message. So it starts off, whatever is true. So you don't think about it unless it's true. And then you got to go down to noble. And you don't think about it unless it's true and noble. Because there are some things that are true, like rape is true, but it's not noble to think about rape. Whatever is right, so then you got to think about what's right. And then you gotta th- it's got to be pure, and then it's got to be lovely. It's got to be admirable. It's got to be excellent. And then that the last little tip, if you're looking at a funnel, it funneling all the way down, it's got to be praiseworthy. And so if your thought can go through all of that, keep thinking it. If it gets stopped at any one of those things, and it's garbage, throw it out, just like gold being sifted through a filter. Whenever the rocks come, get those rocks out, because gold is finer than most rocks, and it will go all the way down. Do you get it? So whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and I hope that there's good things you see in the leaders here at the church, including me, by God's grace, and the peace of God will be with you. So how do we get the peace of God? Transcends all understanding, rejoice. Plus, prayer and thanksgiving equals the peace of God. How do we keep it? With us. How do we keep it with us? By guarding our thoughts and only meditating on that which is good and putting into practice that which we've learned. How do we receive peace? Rejoicing, plus prayer and thanksgiving. How do we keep peace? By thinking the thoughts of God, plus putting into practice what the apostles do. Peace will stay with us. Receive it and keep it. Amen? I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need; for I have learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to have uh, to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, in any and every situation, whether fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things who gives. Uh, I can I can do all things through Him who gives me the strength. A rich man and a poor man were walking together one day, and the rich man was showing the poor man everything he had. He said, look at this building. I have this. He said, look at this yacht. I have this. He said, look at this car. I have this. And the poor man said, I have one thing you don't have. And the rich man said, what is that? And the poor man said, enough. Contentment is the secret of happiness. Whether you're rich or poor, if you're content, you'll be happy. Why? Because through Christ, you can do all things. I've watched the poor raise up better children than the rich. I've watched good marriages come out of little ceremonies that happened in the church parking lot. While the ones with the $20,000 budget, you know, $100,000 budget didn't even make it a year. Right? Come on, somebody. Enough! Jesus is my enough. He's the one that gives me strength. He's the one that I'm counting on, not the job, not just the family, not just the things around me. Those, Those are good. I would rather be full than hungry. I would rather have than not have. But the secret of being content in any and every situation is knowing that you can do all things through Christ. God will make a way. Yet it was good for you, now he's talking to them, that you got to share in my troubles. It's an offering message. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I sent out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So I guess the Thessalonians weren't given like they should have been, but the Philippians were. He said, not that I desire your gifts, not that he's in it for the money. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. And, of course, people have misused this passage. Just give me more so you can have more in heaven. But he's being honest with them. He's saying, when you really give and receive, uh, when you give to me and I receive it, I then give you an opportunity to receive more from heaven. The giving and receiving doesn't just stop here. It also goes into heavenly realms. So he says, I want you to be credited with more to your account. So when we give as unto the Lord, the Lord keeps record of it. Even if the churches we're a part of may take advantage of us or do wrong. And I pray that that never happens here. But we shouldn't allow that to to stop us from giving. He said, I have received full payment and have more than enough. Somebody say more than enough. He said he's amply supplied, and I can say the same thing here, though I'd you know, like to have bigger buildings and all that, but, but for what we're doing, we have more than enough, praise God. I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphrodus the gifts you sent. So Epaphrodus must have been coming with some offerings. They are fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And then now here's the promise. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Where does that come about? Where does that promise come? When the person's giving to the work of the Lord. So people who are just walking around going, oh man, I know God's going to meet all my needs. And they're not giving. They're not helping the church go forward. They're not going to have that promise. The promise is for those who are giving like you. And God says, I'm going to take care of you. He ends with these final words. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings all God's people here sends you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. He must have been not the main Caesar of Rome, but another dude named Caesar, all of Caesar's household. Or it could be the main Caesar's household, but there's people in his house getting saved. So you never know. What Caesar is it? The Caesar of Rome or another person named Caesar? Either way, somebody who's named Caesar in his house, people are getting saved. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Men, so be it. And by the way, as it's coming to my memory, it could have even been the main Caesar because uh, sometimes people ask, how do we know the things that happened during the trials? If people are getting saved from governmental officials... And their, back, uh, and their households, they could have gotten the records, and that's how Luke would know and others would know what happened when Jesus was there or that person was there is because they were able to get records. It even says that of Herod's house, people were getting saved, so they would know what would happen in Herod's house. Because oftentimes we're reading it like we're a fly on the wall, but remember, none of the Christians were there. Peter's way over there. He's scared. Other people aren't at the trials. How are we getting the information of the inside scoop? So it could very well be Caesar's household now that I think, uh, think about that. Let's close in prayer, and let's ask the Lord to give you remembrance of this and to study it. And though you can't remember it all, let's pray that you remember some of the main parts. Amen? Thank you, um, Jorge. Father, I ask you to bless us today as we close out this time of studying the book of Philippians. Help us to always know and love you and to serve you, and to remember in a nutshell what this book was about, to retain it into our heart and to read through it throughout the years ahead of us and to add to our knowledge. That Paul was in prison for the gospel and that he was going to use that opportunity to continue to forward the gospel. And that he wanted the people of that church to get along, to be humble, and to look to your son as an example of that humility, that incarnation. And that, Lord, he wanted them to be aware that there was false religions and others that were out there trying to distract them from your pure gospel. He wanted them to pursue you more than anything else through Christ Jesus. And, Lord, he wanted uh, the local church to give and to receive. Lord, may we remember these things. May we incorporate them into our everyday lives. May we walk worthy of the gospel. May we live up to that which we have received. May we strive to see the resurrection and put past what is behind us. That one thing he said he does. May we do it. Forget the past and strain towards what is ahead. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said Amen.